Ladies and gentlemen, this will be a, a somewhat shorter session than the others uh, because it is a micro-focus on one country and one aspect of one country and one particularly um, riveting dynamic uh, where an, an under 35-year-old, uh, uh, late 20s, uh, 30 or 30-ish, uh, Deputy Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin uh, Salman uh, has come up with this bold uh, economic vision that's been announced in the last half year with lots of Western consultants, Americans and others, um, having to do with what Saudi Arabia uh, will intend to try to accomplish in frames of reference uh, for those efforts uh, between now and 2030. Uh, we have a blue ribbon uh, panel in terms of uh, former U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, uh, General uh, Ambassador uh, James Smith, Seema Khan, who's worked with Saudi Arabia's Government Investment Authority, uh, Julie Monaco with regard to Citibank, who also has background at J.P. Morgan and uh, other financial institutions, and is a role model for not just women, but men, but humans across the border with regard to professional volunteerism, and has been um, uh, granted uh, numerous uh, awards in this uh, regard, and then uh, Newton Howard, uh, who is going to address one of the more seemingly for us lay people, for those of us in the arts, humanities, and social sciences, this is an, an MIT person who's working with uh, intentions and brains and mind management, uh, which a lot of us uh, could benefit from uh, there, and dealing with uh, project uh, code. So these are the four. We'll start with Ambassador Smith. And we have John Pratt here to help us with the questions from the audience. We have three by five cards, four by six pieces of paper. Write your question on the uh, uh, paper and uh, have one of the National Council uh, bring it forward. Thank you. Ambassador Smith, would you come to the main podium so people here could see you? Uh, you, you otherwise would be blocked. I'm not sure being seen is a great advantage, but Dr. Anthony, thanks for being back. Um, uh, Saudi Vision 2030 and its uh, 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 partner initiative of changing the government by 2020, I think are the most important initiatives that I've seen in my time in connection with Saudi Arabia. But rather than judge uh, the effectiveness this far, I'm going to offer four reasons to be optimistic and four reasons to be concerned. The first reason to be optimistic is that Saudi Vision 2030 builds on a 10-year investment in education. Um, in my time in Riyadh, 26% uh, of the national budget was dedicated to education, and this involves sending students abroad, but also going from eight to 32 universities in the country. I know of no other investment in education that's similar other than the GI Bill after World War II here in the United States. And that investment in, in education here was what was the engine of growth of our economy in the 50s and 60s. And if the Saudis can capitalize on that investment in education, it's entirely possible that their economy will be an engine for the region in the future. Second reason to be positive is this is not a traditional study. 
And even though Prince Mohammed bin Salman has been accused of being the minister of McKinsey, the reality of it is as much of the, the, the nug work behind this study has been done by Saudis. Uh, they took over the uh, 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 Intercon Hotel uh, and broke wings down in the study groups. Uh, and this was work, done, work that was done by Saudi 30-somethings. So it's not going to be a study that's put on the shelf and the consultants go away. The people who actually built what is behind that which was released publicly are Saudis. And it also uh, addresses initiatives created by Saudis and you're going to hear about Project Code uh, here in a few minutes, and that's just one of uh, the, the kinds of initiatives that you're seeing that I think are very, very positive. Third reason to be optimistic is you have commitment at the very highest echelons of the government. This did not start as a reaction to dropping uh, the uh, fall in oil prices. This initiative started as soon as King Salman became crown prince, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman went with him from uh, uh, when he was uh, Minister of Defense, and, and they started working this two years before oil prices started dropping. This is going to be the, the, the signature contribution of the St. King Salman era. Uh, so uh, uh, what you see with King Salman uh, is he's holding the royal family accountable. And through Prince Mohammed, he's holding ministers accountable. So it's entirely possible you're seeing a different dynamic where the leaders inside of the government are actually held accountable for success. And the fourth reason to be optimistic is the move for, to place Prince Mohammed bin Salman at the top three echelon is a default to the importance of the youth of the country and 60% of the population is 30 years or younger. In order to be successful in moving to a private sector economy, you've got to have buy-in by this highly educated group of young people uh, and changing a work ethic and, and committing themselves to the future of the country. So, so I think this uh, support of the country's youth uh, in the future of the country is, is a very positive aspect of what's going on now. I would offer four concerns and things to watch. The first is what I would judge is a cultural aversion to failure or a cultural aversion to risk. You see this at the government level because uh, the government would pay top dollar for our de fully developed technology but only a half of 1% of the budget was dedicated to research and development. So this idea of creating their own intellectual property and then creating industry from that is a new concept. The idea, uh, they've always brought it from the outside. You see that in, in entrepreneurs, uh, 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 fear of risk, because in, in Silicon Valley, failure is a badge of, 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 of honor. And most entrepreneurs, you meet them, they start the conversation by saying, well, I failed at this, but I failed at that, but then I succeeded. Uh, 
in, 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 in the Middle East, uh, there is this sense that if you fail, it brings dishonor on you, your family, your tribe, and, and they've got to get past that and, and, and create within a culture of entrepreneurship a willingness to take risk and, 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 and accept that. Second concern is that the same guys that are promoting the move to the private sector economy are the same guys that ran a state-run economy, okay? Uh, and the operative word in a state-run economy is control. And you're still seeing some of that behavior in the government where they're trying to pick the right hundred companies to come in and set up joint ventures uh, uh, and do public-private partnerships, this idea of control is still resident. The operative word for a private sector economy needs to be empowerment. So you don't need a hundred big companies, you need a hundred thousand entrepreneurs that you let loose, you encourage, you empower, and you may find that 60,000 of them fail the first time. But they're probably going to succeed the second or third time. Third concern is the lack of visible policy changes on the part of the government that will attract investment. Uh, why would somebody want to invest in Saudi Arabia? It used to be because the money was there. That's not the case necessarily. You kind of got to go back 50 years and look at Singapore and ask why would people flood to this little tiny peninsula and, and invest there? So I, I'm looking to the government to make policy changes that would attract investment. And just one example, if you look at TPP right now, one of the sticking points, uh, aside from the political, is the issue of biologics and data rights associated with biologics, where the United States wants 10 years of data rights. Countries like Australia, who have not invested in this, want zero. If the Saudi government came out and said, we will guarantee 12 years of data rights for any biologics that are developed here, you're going to start seeing money in that sector moving. So look for policy changes from the government that will attract investment. And, and my last point of concern is the absence of a regional organization that is devoted to the idea of making the region competitive in a global economy. And I'll use the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation as a model. Started in the early 90s, actually started from Australia, 12 countries, now has 21 countries. And they're devoted to making these countries in Asia and the Americas competitive in a global economy. And every day is focused on breaking down trade barriers, protecting intellectual property, uh, health, women's empowerment, whole kinds of things that make economies effective. There is no such thing in the region. And the United States has no seat in any multilateral organization in the region. It's the only region in the world where that is true. Everything we do is bilateral. And every country in the region comes out of its rabbit hole and announces its vision. But there's no overarching entity that helps pull all that together. It's got to be bigger than the GCC. It's got to be bigger than Arab. You've got to include Turkey in this. And you've got to start having a different conversation on all those countries that start with the letter I. And, and I submit, with this kind of organization, you can go back to the history of the region where the caravan was the operative word 
a region that was focused on trade and interchange among the regions, uh, the, the nations of the country. With that, I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Next, as, as Dr. Seema Khan. Dr. Anthony, thank you so much for inviting me to speak today, and I'd like to thank the council for putting this together. It's, uh, th this panel is focused on Saudi Vision 2030, but I think that it would be helpful because we've heard so much in the last couple of days about the different economic and political contexts to pull what's happening in Saudi Arabia up into really what's happening globally within emerging markets and why should the United States care? Or why should developed economies care about what's occurring? Saudi Vision 2030 is really interesting because it's the latest in the line of competitiveness-based visions from developing markets or emerging markets, which really started in 1960 with Singapore and has slowly through Ireland, specifically stating it out in 1997, as well as other regions such as Kenya, uh, which all have predated Saudi, the, of every other Gulf state, and Malaysia, shown that when a country uses this kind of activity, they actually make themselves more accessible, and they're changing the way that government is viewed, both from their internal and their external perspective. The questions that we have to ask then is not only what does it mean, looking at what Saudi Arabia has done now, but why is that different? than what has happened in the past with similar economies. The, the first piece is, is that what's happening right now with these countries taking this aspect, and Saudi's example is especially relevant because it's a culture and it's a language and it's a country that is generally misunderstood uh, for a variety of reasons we have discussed, as well as a region that seems unfamiliar. But Vision 2030 all of a sudden changes that entire aspect and brings transparency and accountability both at a domestic and international scale to an economy, as well as giving a massive communication engagement platform. The country went through this process by looking at what other countries was, uh, had, uh, had accomplished in the same area. And Ambassador Smith highlighted an issue just earlier saying that it, it's been built on what's happened in the past. This is not just a consultants-based exercise. And what has been built in the past is a pattern of economic development. But most of us haven't seen it unless you're very familiar with that area. If you look at Malaysia or Kenya, who are very similar 2030s, Oman with the 2020 vision, and now Saudi Arabia's websites, they are remarkably different. They're so engagement, engaging. It's a communication and engagement platform designed to appeal both to the public, their own domestic public, as well as the international community. Whereas if you go to the US Department of Commerce, you're overwhelmed with so much information that you can't even tell what the United States actually wants to do. Whereas for Saudi or Malaysia, you go in and you hear the story. And that engagement exercise and that transparency exercise, because it takes a great deal of courage 
for any country, let alone a country under the type of scrutiny that Saudi Arabia is under, to say exactly what they're going to do or be in 15 to 20 years, when that 15 to 20 years is just around the corner. That courage of transparency helps you and I, who may not understand the country, just know where are they going as a people, as an economy, as a government, and their place in the world. Which takes me to the second point about why Vision 2030 is important from a U.S. perspective in particular, is for what it does not say. The scale, and this is also what makes it different from other visions that have come out, the scale of what Saudi Arabia is talking about is probably unheard of and perhaps has only been accomplished one or two times to greater or lesser success in South Korea and in China. The scale of what they're talking about is a massive functional structural shift in their GDP through two economic phases over the space of 15 years. They're expecting to go from essentially a factor and or somewhat investment driven economy to a knowledge based or a, I just dropped something and it's not mine. Uh, the, or to a knowledge-based or innovation-based economy. It's, it's mind-boggling to think any country can do that. South Korea did, but they did it through a telecommunications structural reform. China has begun to do it, but they're doing it through a population-based growth strategy. Saudi is doing it through several levers, through political, through economic, and through defense and security. And defense and security is what is not mentioned in the strategy, nor should it be. Uh, defense and security issues for any country are, are their own. However, it hints at it by implying that the country needs to build a military industrial supply chain, which is actually the leverage point to strengthen its commercial sector. It, it's quite interesting when you read through Vision 2030 and that scale issue, because that's what differentiates it from what's happened before. It reminds me a lot of, uh, any one of these Vision 2030s reminds me a lot of uh, Robert Frost's poem, uh, Nature's First Green is Gold. Any good CEO will know that a vision is like that concept of gold in the poem, that uh, it's not there and it's the hardest you to hold. That's what the vision's like. But a good CEO also knows that it's the evolution in between that helps you use that vision as a lodestone and then understand how to get there. And watching that journey is actually a lesson for the more developed economies that are facing structural issues on uh, their demand, on their rising debt, aging populations, aging infrastructure, because it's the exact opposite in these other economies. And Saudi Arabia is showing a pattern of how to take that to advantage, create growth, transparency, and huge change. So it'll be, it'll be very interesting to watch. Thank you so much for your time. Ms. Monaco. It's a pleasure to be here today at the 25th Annual Arab-U.S. Policymakers Conference. Um, my name is Julie Monaco and I head Citigroup's global public sector business in our corporate and investment bank. And my business provides advisory, capital markets financing, hedging, cash management, the various financial um, products that you would expect 
to governments and government entities around the world. And I'm part of a division that also provides that to private corporations um, and financial institutions in 100 countries. So I'm going to therefore make my comments today from the perspective of a global wholesale bank, which has significant experience in helping governments achieve um, the ambitious economic growth plans that many of them have and many of them announce. And, and really take it from the perspective that we have analyzed through our work um, with the government, the 2030 vision and ways that we can help from a financial standpoint. Um, this spring when the kingdom released the vision 2030, the international community welcomed it with open arms. But as with many government strategies, it was not embraced without some skepticism. We've seen many ambitious reform plans from governments before and there's often a concern amongst investors that such programs fall short of achieving their goals. However, for those of us who have been tracking, along, um, tracking the kingdom's progress, the declaration demonstrated that the kingdom was ready to take a long-term approach and was committed to the necessary actions that's going to accelerate its growth and diversify its economy. In Citi's view, there are two key factors that differentiate the vision from previous efforts to diversify the Saudi economy. First, in our view, the execution of Vision 2030 is entirely within the reach of the Kingdom's current capability. It is not simply aspirational. After four decades of development, its capacity to manage complex projects and innovate is greater than in any time in the Kingdom's history. The Kingdom has had more than 40 years of industrial development, of investment um, in infrastructure and growing economic confidence. Second, there's an abundance of political will for the implementation of Vision 2030, and the Saudi government has already started along the path of restructuring and aligning their systems to these national priorities. There are many challenges ahead and difficult decisions that come with this change agenda, but, but all the signs point to Saudi Arabia's leadership being fully aligned behind this vision. And yet the diversification will take significant financial investment at a time when the state's revenues are reduced. So how can the kingdom successfully finance this transition in a time, in time to satisfy the expectations of global economic um, commentators, who will, I'm sure will be very critical? The first step was to assure the long-term viability of public finances, which was outlined with the National Transformation Program 2020 and, and, and often called NTP in June, with specific fiscal policy targets. Fiscal consolidation is occurring through reductions in public sector wage bills, lowering of government department expenditures, and continued subsidy reform for water and energy. Authorities will also gradually roll out revenue, raising measures covering excise tax, value-added tax, and may include some elements of income tax for foreign workers. This has had the desired effect of significantly cutting the government deficit. Nonetheless, the transformation still needs to be financed in the current period. So the government increased domestic bond issuance during the year before boldly taking the kingdom into the international debt markets. As a result of the latter, we at Citi found ourselves um, in the position to take part in a $10 billion loan facility for the sovereign. This marked the first external debt raising exercise for the kingdom and was shortly followed by the government's inaugural bond issuance for which Citi also um, acted as a global coordinator. We can say with all the issuances that have happened this year, and there's a lot of sovereign debt that was issued this year, that international investors are clear-eyed about risk and return in this current environment. But last week, the kingdom successfully priced the largest ever de debut sovereign bond at 17.5 billion, issued in five, 10, and 30-year tranches, 
and generated an order book of 67 billion. The sheer size and demand for the issue signify just how monumental of an occasion this was. And the reason for this is the kingdom's fiscal strength alongside with investors' belief in the credit story and in the story of, of the vision of 2030 and this reform agenda. So our finance team working um, on this bond were partnering with the kingdom's newly established debt management office. They took a disciplined approach to prioritization, rationalization, and reallocation to ensure the kingdom's balance sheet is, is um, suitably optimized. And just as importantly, they demonstrated the management depth and the professional expertise that's available inside the kingdom, which really bodes well for the future, uh, not only of the kingdom, but of the financial services industry there. City launch views the launch of the bond program and the success of the first transaction as a landmark, not only for the international capital markets, but for the kingdom itself. I would argue that this new debt program will not only drive the Vision 2030 plan, but enhance the gro growth of the Saudi capital markets and promote the whole uh, development of the financial sector. It has created an important benchmark for the kingdom and enables public and private sector entities and banks to access these markets too. And as the government fiscal consolidation takes place, financing gaps are creating, uh, that are created from that fiscal consolidation are enabling the private sector to play an increased role in the future economic development, which is exactly part of the plan. From direct lending to intermediary foreign capital, there'll be new areas where the Saudi banks will be able to take the lead, including in infrastructure financing, sustainable um, investment, and climate solutions. These are set to be very large markets on a global scale, um, and we're happy to see that they're priorities within Saudi Arabia and that they have such strong political backing. City themselves, we've committed over $100 billion over the next 10 years to be financing sustainable development and climate solutions. So it's in line with our global strategy. And with regard to the Saudi equity market, which has the benefit of being both deep and liquid, international investors are now offered access to what has been called the world's largest closed equity market. The large capitalization of this market and the future prospect of equity um, of equity index inclusion will ensure continuing overseas investment into Saudi Arabia. And the privatization program within the Vision 2030 will see these international investments balloon and further increase the kingdom's um, opening. While we expect further enhancement of the Saudi capital markets as a result of these factors, let's not forget that the existing local capital markets already possess significant scale, um, strength, and liquidity. And now they're able to join the forces with the international capital markets as a way of supporting this vision. So the public-private partnership will play a crucial role too, and cities identified in blended finance as a mechanism to use public resources to mobilize private capital and look forward to working on that with the kingdom. So what else is required to maintain a strong momentum for, 20, um, for 2030 to continue? One, commitment to good governance and transparency of reporting, which was mentioned by um, my colleagues on the panel, the emphasis should be on how things are done rather than simply on quantitative objectives. It is essential ingredient in any strategy for modernizing an economy and it is gonna be absolutely necessary to attract international investors. Two, a commitment from the kingdom to maintain a strong credit profile and that is done obviously through the, um, through the fiscal management. And such a commitment contained in NTP will serve as a beacon for, the, for investors, both foreign and domestic. Three, 
we view the continued development of the kingdom's abundant natural resources base outside of hydrocarbons as a top priority, um, as a top priority in accelerating the diversification of the economy. We see, we see the mining industry um, and the Maiden, the largest mining company who's already in the process of building the world's largest aluminum plant, that to us is a sign of a part of the economy that can be developed very fast and help with that, um, with that diversification. So I'll end my remarks here. And while there are numerous challenges that remain, we believe that with the kingdom's leadership and with the support of the private sector, the availability of new financial services tools will happen and there'll be real growth and development opportunities. And we look forward to being a part of that. Dr. Howard, uh, who uh, brings an extraordinary and quite different set of credentials uh, uh, to these issues and um, with implications for security, for food, transportation, uh, health care sectors, and far more in Saudi Arabia's infrastructural dynamics. Dr. Howard. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, for having me here. And, uh, <clears throat> We hear a lot about uh, Vision uh, 2030 from a policy level. Uh, I'm here to give you a perspective on implementation and a specific project level. Uh, this project that uh, we refer to as Project Code, um, it's essentially inspired from the human brain, the needs of the human brain. And uh, hence why actually is led by uh, 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 neurotechnologists rather than uh, a policymaker. Um, a colleague of mine who was a student of mine years ago uh, was inspired by um, the area and brought it to uh, uh, His Excellency uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, during the same time we are uh, putting together the, uh, the Vision uh, 2030 and said, wouldn't that be a great idea to actually have uh, something influential uh, that aligns with the rest of the uh, global uh, research and incubation initiatives. Here in the U.S., we have something called the Obama Initiative, uh, Brain Obama Initiative. Uh, the uh, European have the Brain uh, uh, European Brain Initiative, and uh, in the MENA region, there is no really uh, much of an attention to the area of neurotech or brain in general. Why the human brain uh, is obviously the most important organ, uh, and, and that we. Uh, that we have, um, but because most discoveries point that you can control a lot of illnesses and diseases uh, directly from the human brain. So the new direction of medicine, uh, to give you an example, uh, there could be a very small penile gland in the brain that malfunctioning, causing you anywhere in the vicinity of 400 different disorders, including sugar, obesity, et cetera, et cetera. And it's treated in a different way now. Um, taking the, the direction further and implementing that enables us to bring the latest in science and technology uh, into medicine. Um, Project Code also uh, serves as a, an incubation uh, for innovation technology and innovation in general, uh, even if it's uh, uh, policy innovation. Um, it's such a way that uh, for the first time you 
utilizing the power of a class of investments like VC, uh, mezzanine, and uh, so on. Um, it stems from the pillar, one of the uh, 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 core items in uh, uh, V20 uh, theory is innovation. Several of the ideas that are uh, being implemented carry and consistently on with this pillar. Um, we are hoping to create within this initiative the Salman Brain Initiative, uh, which will then bring MENA onto the map, the global map of this type of projects. There's a lot more to be said in uh, details on numbers and whatnot. The size of the project is roughly one billion. Uh, it is a side-by-side -side, uh, investment, which means that we encourage outside uh, investors to participate uh, with the Saudi sovereign uh, uh, fund and allocation of funds that we have. Um, we already started, so from, I get the question a lot, uh, initiation time and when uh, do, we, uh, uh, do we start? We, we've been uh, operational for some time now, not fully operational yet, but uh, reaching capacity. Uh, location is Riyadh with some international uh, uh, presence in various other capitals. And uh, as I said, my uh, uh, presentation is gonna be very tactically operational information rather than a high policy level. So with that, I leave you to uh, uh, think up more questions and then we can answer them during the question and answer sessions. Thank you very much. I'm Imran Arader, and um, I've spent 35 years in uh, the kingdom, worked for Saudi Aramco, and so I'm well familiar with the, um, the lay of the land. Um, but I was also involved in the uh, transformation program in one of our company departments. And I think um, the strategies that have been talked about in the program um, are significant um, as milestone events, but I think, as everyone is indicated on the panel, the devil's in the details with regard to implementation. So my role here is to ask the question of, um, is the Vision 2020 or 2030 on track um, with regard to the milestone set out in the, in the Grand Master Plan? Um, and what are the regional implications for um, the plan with regard to Saudi Arabia's uh, reach into the GCC? and uh, across the region. Does, is there any provision in that, uh, that plan to do, to incorporate a, uh, the, the region and, and engage um, uh, its neighbors in, in trying to push forward a regional approach to trade, innovation, uh, capturing um, the, and harnessing the, the, the younger generation that has returned um, after being educated abroad. So we'll just start with, with you. Maybe we can start with the, um, the timeline and then just go right down and um, get everybody's opinion on that. Yeah. How, how would you help us assess 
uh, where we are now, what obstacles have already been uh, encountered and surmounted, and if not, why? And if so, how? And also why? And the uh, longer-term implications for the region as a whole, not just the kingdom. Uh, for a number of years now, the uh, area of uh, technology uh, innovation implementation and, and bringing uh, and incubating ideas uh, in Saudi Arabia has uh, been uh, championed. In fact, right here on the panel, SEMA uh, uh, years ago um, uh, had uh, led a number of American uh, high technology companies like Oracle and Intel and, and many others to come to the kingdom. and. Uh, successfully uh, uh, initiate programs. Um, we hope to build on that success, um, adding to it that we would implement uh, larger cooperation with the rest of the region, uh, using infrastructure uh, that already exists, uh, like in Dubai and other, and other places, uh, uh, Turkey included in some of the areas, uh, in R&D and in advanced uh, technology, you need uh, uh, faculty and you need good students uh, as well as ideas. Without these, you're operating in vacuum and we can build siloids that actually produce uh, nothing. Uh, so uh, the challenge for us now is to actually uh, create that uh, attractiveness uh, that bring the best of the best uh, to be a participant in our team. And the team isn't necessarily, the old thinking is that everything we need to do in Saudi Arabia must be uh, sitting inside the kingdom territory. Uh, Project Code departs from that in the sense that um, uh, we would be collaborating uh, in local areas and regional areas that far outside of the boundaries of Saudi Arabia. And that is uh, to the vision of, uh, of uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, way of thinking. He thinks out of the box. He's only in his early 30s and uh, we all think of him as our friend as opposed to uh, 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 the older uh, uh, frame way of thinking, the unreachable, if you will. I would my comments are going to be very short and it's again, it's specific to the financial side of this and the economic um, development. I would have to say in terms of your question about obstacles already surmounted, I think that it's um, obstacles were definitely overcome just to get the fiscal consolidation, um, which reduced the fiscal deficits, um, which then allowed us to tell a credit story um, to investors um, during the bond roadshow that had everybody believing. And again, institutional investors are pretty sophisticated at looking at sovereigns. And these institutional investors um, need more than just what's on paper. They need to actually see action and proof um, to see that there's a credible story and we see that there's a credible path towards there being a balanced budget by 2020 um, as well as the movements of a lot of the activities that are um, that were laid out in June um, in that program they see the, that they're already in action which is why there was such a strong demand for them for the bonds last week so I'd say that that's you know and in our in our standpoint it's on track from a financial standpoint in terms of financing it 
Well, my, my concern on, on, on this conversation is, as, as is typically, we, we tend to default to looking inside a country, in this case Saudi Arabia or the GCC. Uh, the GCC is a wonderful entity, uh, and, and, and certainly at a political level, uh, it, it, it's very important. The problem is we're talking about economic development, which has to be broader than the GCC. And we've got to think about the region uh, region wide. In order to have the kind of development and trade uh, exports that would bring vitality to the region. The challenge we have in the region is that every conversation begins with a political consideration, which then never leads to an economic discussion. If there was a way that you could start with an economic dis discussion in the absence of a political discussion, is it possible to change the terms of the debate on a whole range of issues in the region? And I'll give you a few examples. Iraq used to be the breadbasket of the region. Yet today, Saudi Arabia is spending billions of dollars on its food security program trying to buy land in other countries so they can grow crops and, and send food to Saudi Arabia, knowing full well that 50% of it is going to spoil before it gets there. Is it possible that we could relook at Iraq being the breadbasket of the region through an economic entity that focuses on regional development? The United States has capitalized on the intellectual capital of India and Indians to the benefit of both of our countries. In the Middle East, they've capitalized on human capital from India. How do you change that and allow that intellectual capital that's so vibrant and, 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 and entrepreneurial and creative to come into the region to help grow a private sector economy? Not doing that quite yet. And I know this is a hard conversation for a lot of people, but how, how can you expect to grow a, a robust private sector economy when you turn your back on the one private sector economy that's done fabulous, and that is Israel? And oh, by the way, Iran has had a robust private sector economy for centuries. How can you turn your back on a country of 80 million people? Now, I understand that I just laid out about a dozen miracles in succession. But if you start from the viewpoint of an economic conversation, is it possible to change the dynamics of the debate? So I kind of feel like Ambassador Smith just laid a bunch of landmines and I'm supposed to walk through them. Um, so the, so the the seemingly innocent question was, what were the challenges of Vision 2030 and uh, what's been accomplished so far? And somehow or other, I got stuck with Iran, Israel, and how can you ignore other people in the region? I think I've summed it up. <laughs> so I think, I think that uh, a way to balance it is to say 2030 it's it's hard to say. It's like asking uh, it's it's like asking Apple uh, with 234 billion dollars. What are you going to do now that your market share has dipped by a percent? 
it, it's a long-term issue. But on the, on the context of the region, I think it's simply said that I find it fascinating that people are worried about Saudi Arabia when globally there is no other country that manages liquidity on a daily basis the scale at which Saudi does. And people forget that. It's for, for years it was seen as the oil swing producer. It's actually a currency stabilizer globally. There's no other country that has had to deal with extreme political and physical unrest right at its borders while maintaining a certain level of domestic stability and regional stability. And the buy-in of 2030 in the region is built on the fact that it's built on other 2030 or 2020 or long-term visions of its neighbors. And then the last piece is, is that people also forget that the, uh, that, the, that the country has an alliance with Turkey and has an alliance with North African and African economies that help to balance out its, uh, the destabilizing factors that it faces in the region. And if I were to say if Saudi Arabia were all by itself in the Gulf, I, I have no doubt that it would probably get to where it wants to go. The other tensions around it, though, are, are, are what add spice to the mix. So the challenges of 2030 will be to see, again, what it did not say, and how does it, how does it respond to those challenges, not really the domestic ones. Um, and in the interest of time and wrapping up on this, and keeping with the National Council's educational mission, I'm going to ask uh, Ms. Monaco and uh, Dr. Howard if uh, they, they would summarize what are the uh, lessons to be learned here? Uh, what is it that we're missing? Uh, you, you're both pioneering. You're, 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 you're break, breaking the glass ceiling and the glass walls. Um, you're charting new paths forward that are difficult for lay people to comprehend. And yet, uh, this is a new aspect of the relationship. And like all the others, it needs to be protected and defended. But people cannot protect or defend anything well or effectively unless they understand it. <clears throat> what is it that's key here that missing and please uh, italicize, capitalize, neonize what that is. I, I would say that, you know, my colleagues on the panel talked about the fact that how brave it was for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to put out this plan, put it out on a website, create an interactive website, tell the entire international market, this is our strategic plan. And it's very detailed. And it's very detailed on how you're going to go to a, um, you know, migrate to being a private sector economy. Um, and, and there really is not a detail that's been left out. And so there's a certain amount of courage and a certain amount of risk. And being a banker, um, what we manage is we manage risk. And so the risk of that is that that story has been told and that story has been sold to investors. And so that now, now it's all about the, education, uh, the execution. Um, and so, so far, the ex execution is moving forward, but it's going to put a lot of pressure on the kingdom to actually really follow through because everybody has been sold this story, uh, especially the investors, who um, the international investors. And how that performs 
will drive how much more direct foreign investment comes in. And that gets back to the issues that we talked about in terms of continuing down the path of reforms around transparency, making it easier place to do business. And there's a lot of plans that are underway in that way. So I think there's lessons still to be learned, um, but it's gonna require a lot of partnership from the private sector um, to work closely with the, with the kingdom to get the, get the plans actually executed. From an implementation uh, of the policy itself, um, there are uh, some vertical alignments and things uh, that need to take place so that you can ensure the success on, on execution, uh, such as um, the uh, visa program or the way the uh, uh, kingdom uh, addresses uh, visitors and whatnot. Well, the most common thing we know is the uh, uh, you're either doing Hajj or you're going to work for the oil company or you have a work contract, et cetera. Well, I'm glad to say that there's a new class of visa that has been experimented with for a number of years and it was closed and it will be brought back, which is a visitor's visa, which would allow people to come and go uh, and travel and explore and possibly uh, stay a longer duration based on the success of business, uh, similar to the American Green Card also uh, program. Uh, from research and development, technology incubation, whatnot, as I said, an idea itself is not adequate if it's not, if you don't have the personnel the, uh, and the people to interact with and uh, you're connected to the wider network. Uh, with respect to issues like sensitivity to work with uh, certain people or uh, whatnot, uh, in, in the category of what uh, project code implementation, uh, we don't really uh, look at where you're from, what country, what is the political issues with that country and whatnot. We look at the science and technology. Is this the best uh, of the best? Are these people the best in the field? And if so, I have the backing of uh, His Excellency Prince Mohammed to make sure that it's done. And I find these to be extremely promising uh, signs for a successful and healthy implementation. Well, one can easily uh, get a glimpse, or just at least, of how exciting this is, not only for the um, managers and the participants and the uh, brains that have been assembled, but the, the youth of the country that has um, a new youthful leader, among others, uh, that is willing to take risks, that's working hard, setting a role model, reaching out, uh, acknowledging uh, limitation shortcomings, uh, but all of us are similarly in that latter boat. So uh, during the break, uh, don't feel uh, shy, taciturn, uh, awkward, coming up to any of the four and saying, I don't understand this, I don't understand that. Uh, can you help me understand this? Can you help me understand that? Uh, but before we break, please join me in thanking all four for powering and during in this session.